I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord uh, with you. We are in a journey through First uh, Peter. Uh, we have four weeks to go through uh, five chapters. Uh, last week, we ended in uh, chapter 3, verse 7, and our theme for this First Peter series is Christian maturity in an immature world. And the first week, we, we looked at the prognosis of Christian maturity, what, what it means uh, to be mature in uh, Christ. And the very definition comes from the theme of this book in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 21 uh, through 25. And we've been reading this every single week. And hopefully, uh, as you read it or uh, you know, listen to it yourself, that it really hits home for you and is fresh every single time that you hear it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, uh, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, he, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so, Father, this morning as we approach this amazing book, uh, this this third part of, of this amazing book, Lord, I ask that you would help us, uh, maybe as we examine our own lives, uh, as we examine our own walk with you and, and how maybe we are immature Christians. Now, maybe at times we still act like babes in Christ rather than mature Christians. And so, Father, uh, challenge every single person in this room, every single person listening today. Lord, help us not to be complacent in our walk with you. Help us to have that desire uh, to grow closer to you every single day, to grow in maturity in you, Lord. And we see it all around us, the immaturity, and please forgive us for wanting to imitate an immature world rather than imitating you, Lord. And so, Lord, I ask you just bless these, my friends and my family gathered here today. And use us for your glory. Let your word speak powerfully today, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen and amen. Uh, last week, and I, I told you every single week, it's going to get a, a little bit more uh, di difficult, uh, not only for me, but also for uh, you as well, starting with the prognosis, the, the definition of what it means to be uh, spiritually mature, and then last week, the superiority of, of uh, what it means uh, to be under submission, uh, going through the various levels of government and employee, and then also in the home as well. And now, coming to this main topic uh, that Peter has been talking about that encompasses the entire uh, book, it's this topic of suffering. What it truly means to suffer for Christ as Christ suffered uh, for us. So today the title is Superiority and a Joy of Suffering. The superiority and joy of suffering. And you may, you know, if you're, you know, kind of foreign to these terms and, and wonder why is there joy in suffering? Why, why is there joy in pain? Why, why is there joy in reviling or trials or all these things that we go through in the Christian life? And unfortunately, many people have a, a wrong view when they come to Christ. Everything's going to be perfect when I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And thank God the, the eternal consequences of what we have done, the eternal consequences of our sin have been paid for in Jesus Christ. 100%, thank God, where am I going forever and ever? Heaven. I, I, I get to enjoy glory with God. But does that mean that all of the consequences of our sins, temporary consequences of our sins, 
are all just erased away in this world? No. Do we still have problems in this world? Is there still suffering that goes on in this world? In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 8, picking up where we left off last week, it says, finally, all of you be of one mind. And this is coming off the topic of submission, okay? This is coming off the topic that we were on last week. We're all supposed to be submissive, not just to a particular person, but to each other as well. We're, we're supposed to have that same mind that was in Christ of submission to God, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. I don't know what your week was like this last week. I, I, I don't know, you know, how many hours you had to work or or the people that you had to deal with. Maybe it was that customer or that person that you work for or that works for you or, or that family member or that friend that you know is going through a hard time and, and maybe they didn't treat you well when you gave them advice. Now, I don't know what your week was like, but I do know what the scriptures say. That we're supposed to act in a mature way to those that are not mature, that are immature. We're supposed to be examples as Christ is to us. In fact, in, in John chapter 18, verses 10 through 11, uh, Peter, again, and we're, we're seeing a little bit of Peter as we're walking through the book of uh, 1 Peter, a character study, getting to see his immaturity in his younger days and then his immaturity now in his older age. It says in in John chapter 18, verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was uh, Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given to me? Again, Peter making those classic Peter mistakes. Was he mature when Jesus was here on this world? Did he act in immature ways? And Jesus had to tell him, you know, you need to put that sword away. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And of course, what were Peter's intentions? He was defending his friend. He was defending his uh, Lord but again, was he in submission to the will of God? No. And Peter had a plan for Jesus. And, and it wasn't to die on a cross. Uh, Peter's plan for Jesus was to overthrow the Roman government. Peter, Peter's plan for, for Jesus was to reign here on the earth with him at his right side. The, the glory that comes with walking with a person for a long period of time. The investment that he had made, not only in his relationship with Jesus Christ, but also from his perspective, this has to go my way or no way. And isn't that how we approach God many times? We come before him with our list, our plans. Lord, bless my plans, rather than submitting to the plan of God. Rather than listening to him and submitting, just as we just sang, you know, that, that whole idea that I, I'm just sitting in your presence, waiting at your feet, listening for your will, not my will. And of course, Jesus was the perfect example of this submitting to the will of God. Thank God for a book like 1 Peter, because as Peter grew up, as he matured now, instructing the next generation of Christians, these Christians that have also suffered through persecution, uh, the diaspora, the people that have been dispersed throughout the known world. In Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 18, we're only going to read the, the first three verses and the end of this section. 
but you can uh, read it for yourself uh, later. In Acts chapter 11, it says this, and now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to be to uncircumcised man and ate with them. Now, you kind of have to understand the, the cultural implications of this. To the Jewish mind, there was Jews and everybody else. And, and everybody else were called the Gentiles or the nations. God had chosen the Jews. They were the chosen people of God and damned be everybody else, right? Everybody else was going to hell, except for the Jews. And Peter, of course, had this vision of this blanket being laid down, this picnic table, if you will, and God telling him to eat and kill all these unclean animals. And he relates this story to the Jews, of how this relates to circumcised and uncircumcised, or, or Jew and Gentile. Why is God reaching out to the Gentiles? Why would he ever do that? Because they had a plan, and it was a Jewish plan, and it was exclusively Jewish. By the way, aren't you glad that God just didn't die, or Jesus didn't just die for the Jews? Those of us without a single drop of Jewish blood are accepted as well. Peter, in his more mature way now, walking not only filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, but learning himself, now has a different attitude. And he responds to these immature people. And yes, they, they had all the arguments coming from the Jewish law. The Messiah was for the Jews. But Peter says he's also for the Gentiles as well. He's for the entire world for God so loved the world and Peter responds in this way at the very end of this text in verse 18 he says and when they heard these things they become silent and they glorified God saying then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life a maturity now in the church, both, both Jews and Gentiles coming to the place where I'm accepting, submitting to the will of God rather than to the will of man. Because is it so easy to have cliques in the church? Is it so easy to have our group of friends? Is it, is it so easy to have, you know, certain people that we hang out with and those other people, well, you know, is it so easy to just be with our friends rather than people that rub us the wrong way or may even have different, you know, theological standpoints than us? Thank God that God is patient with every single one of us, right? Thank God that he is patient with us. You see, Christian maturity isn't just the things that we do. It's not just all the, the things that we do in the church or, or for the church. It's the attitude in which we do them. It's the attitude in which we do those things. Uh, uh, you know, and thank God we have Sunday school teachers. And Vanessa, you know, uh, being one of the, the, or the leader of the Sunday school uh, teachers, every single week they go over there and they teach our kids no matter how the kids act. And there can be some very immature kids over there. And they, they teach the kids with humility in their hearts. They, they love those kids. And there can be a very high turnover in a Sunday school place, right? I, I taught it for uh, 12 years at first service. And, and the privilege of being able to know that there's, there's kids in there that are PKs, pastor's kids even. You know, the, the, the kids that, you know, uh, work or the, their parents work in the church and, and they go to the Sunday school room and, and they, they're learning themselves. Or, or, you know, Monday nights with the men, you know, the, the, you know there's, there's some men that, you know, chase other men away that, that are very demanding at times. 
And how do I respond in a way with Christian maturity to other people that, yes, they're, they're Christians, but they're still immature in their walk? How do I respond to that? And Peter is saying in this book, in this section here, that there's a way to respond. Do not revile when you are reviled against. Do not uh, argue when someone argues with you. There's, there's a, a way to approach another immature Christian. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes this quote that he's actually quoting from uh, another part of the scripture, the Old Testament, in fact, Psalms 34, he says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Wow. And by the way, this is David writing this when he was pretending to be insane when he was amongst the Philistines. Very, very last part of that verse, though. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's not our place to judge how people act around us. It's our responsibility how we respond to how they act. I can't control how you act. I can't control how someone acts when they, they call me in the middle of the night or, or call me in the middle of the day or, or, and then just start spewing out whatever's going on. Cussing, you know, saying bad things. I, I can't determine how they act. But can I determine how I respond to their action? That, that's the only thing that I can control is how I respond. You see, in, in Psalms 34, when he's, David is writing these uh, verses, when he's writing this psalm, he is in the midst of being pursued by Saul. Saul wants to kill him. And, and he can't determine how Saul is acting, but he can determine how he responds to Saul's action. And when the opportunity arose, what did he choose? There in that cave, when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, what did he do instead? Saul's acting extremely immature. Why don't you just kill him? Just get it over with, right? That's what all of the mighty men were telling him to do. And what does David do instead? He submitted to the will of God. He submitted, and, and by the way, the will of God was that he would wait for 20 years before he got on the throne. 20 years. What patience is that? See, the first point, there's going to be six points uh, today. Uh, Christian maturity is in proportion to how we treat those that speak evil of us for our stand on the truth of God's word. You see, there, there's a, a, a maturity in the Christian walk, and it determines how we respond to other people when they treat us in a ill-gotten way or an evil way. I'm not talking about your personality. I'm not talking about if you sin yourself. I'm talking about the truth of God's word. When you quote scripture to them, are they receptive? Or do they revile you for it? Or do they cuss you out for it? Or do they respond in, a, in an inappropriate way? You see, Christian maturity is in proportion to how we treat those that speak evil of us for our stand on the truth of God's word. Peter says this in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, and, he, or, and who is he who will harm you if you becoming followers of what is good? Can anyone truly outdo the will of God? If, if God has a time for you to be on this world, are you in the safest place right now? And everything else outside the will of God, we're in our own hands. We're in the world's hands. In fact, he says this in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Highlight that verse, underline that verse. 
but then double underline the last three words. Double underline the last three words. Because there's a blessing in suffering for righteousness' sake. I'm not talking about suffering for your mistakes, suffering for your sins, suffering the consequences of what you have done. I'm not talking about that because we all have to deal with those things. What I'm talking about is suffering for righteousness sake. Because when we suffer for the will of God, when we suffer for something that is the truth, when we suffer for righteousness, there is a blessing tagged to that. I love what Peter says in the very next phrase there, and do not be afraid of their threat, nor be troubled. Who has the entire earth in his hand? It's so easy to cave into uh, someone that threatens us for something that we're doing that is righteous, whether, whether it's a losing our, our job or, or losing a friendship or even maybe even being disowned by a, a family member. All, all the consequences that we have in terms of doing what is right, if God is on our side, who can be against us? And Peter understood this. Peter understood this firsthand. Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I don't live in a hopeless life. I have hope if I'm in Jesus. That they're, they're immature. They're battling against you. They're arguing against you because they don't have that hope. And they're trying to boost their own ego. That, that's what an immature person always has to do. They have to look right in their own eyes. And they have to uh, seek validation outside of their own life. Who validates us? Who affirms us? It's not me. It's not a pastor. It's not, it's not someone that you know. It's God himself. And if I'm doing what God tells me to do, no one else can go against that. No one else can. You see, there's a word that is used here that many times we, we misdefine. Even Jesus says it in his, his amazing uh, uh, first preaching that he does called the, the Beatitudes there on the, the northern lake of the, the Sea of Galilee. He uses this word meek. And Peter had heard this word before when, when, you know, Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth, right? All these terms that he used that were the opposite way of thinking of, of Peter and the disciples or the Jews in general. Where, where we have to stand up for our rights. No, we don't have to stand up for our rights. God stands up for us. You see, this word meek doesn't mean weak. Meek does not mean weak. Meek, meek means power under control. There, there's a power inside of us. It, it's the response that we have to those that are immature in their faith or even not in the faith as well. Why is that so important? Why is that so important? Peter answers that in verse 16. Chapter 3, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. When people say bad things about you or, or accuse you of something maybe that you haven't even done, and when, when they accuse you of those those things, it's not you that needs to defend yourself or somehow, you know, get a group of people to defend you. No. There's someone better that defends. It's God himself. It's like when Moses was being accused by Korah and those that had come against him when, when Peter, or when, excuse me, when Moses had been accused even by his own brother and sister. And he just humbly put his hand on his mouth and said, the Lord's going to defend. 
The Lord's going to defend. And does he do a better job than we do? Yeah, he does. Verse 17, it sums it up in a much better way than I could ever sum it up. It says, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Brings us to our second point. The hard choices define who we are in Christ. We rise above. It's the hard choices that we make in Christ that define who we are. See, I'd rather obey Christ and suffer than evil and prosper. And isn't that the choice that we have to face many, many times in our life? It's those choices, those, those hard, defining choices in our life where we can look back and, and know there's times that we failed and there's sometimes that we obeyed the Lord. And, and those times that we failed, we, we see the consequences of those. And those times that we obeyed the Lord, there, there's joy in the suffering. Because I know that I obeyed Christ. You see, the word suffering is used 12 times, more times in 1 Peter than in any other book in the entire Bible. The word suffering is used, and Peter, having come to this place in his own life, understanding the, the superiority of suffering, the, the joy in the suffering for the Lord, what it means. When I allow God to defend myself in an extremely good company, when people revile you for Christ's sake, there's a, a better defender. And his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis writes a book called The Weight of Glory. There's a... Uh, uh, a, a lyric or a poem that he writes, hands that I see holding on to me, they are pierced from all the suffering on that cursed tree, all this suffering momentary harbingers for a weight of glory. All my darkest sins and my misery thrown into the depth of the deepest sea, we rise above. You see, when, when we're a mature Christian walking in the Lord, we rise above the accusations. We, we rise above the immaturity. We act in a way that is not superior, but humble, knowing that there's one who is superior. Jesus Christ. And point number three, the, the weight of suffering is eclipsed by the weight of glory, we rise above. The weight of suffering is eclipsed, pales in significance to the weight of glory. You see, the reward of glory far outshines the temporary afflictions of suffering and even makes them seem light. That defies logic, I know. But the Bible describes it in a much better way. Look at what Paul says, and, and he's going to mirror what Peter says as well. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And, and by the way, we're going to see these parallels between Peter and Paul. Uh, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Do you see the comparison there? How long does suffering last? It is temporary. It is minute compared to eternity. Compared to how long heaven lasts compared to how long glory lasts. And again, I don't know how your week was. I don't know how your month was. I, I don't even know how your year of 2023 has been. But I do know that next year or tomorrow or, or next month, it will seem like it has been a short time. 
And then the older you get, by the way, it seems shorter and shorter, right? Where, where you know, those, those kids that you had when you were, you know, young and, and they were babies and, and now they're, you know, in our case, you know, 19, 21, and 23. And, and it seemed like they were just babies, you know, a couple months ago or a couple years ago, right? And, and how it goes by so quick. And it's the same thing with suffering. The, the, the momentary blimp, the momentary second of suffering in this world pales in significance to the weight of glory. The eternity of glory. And, and as Paul puts it, exceeding an eternal weight of glory. It, it far outshines anything we can truly experience in this world. If we just change our perspective. That's the problem. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul continues on. Oh, while we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We need to change our perspective. Because when I am consumed by the things that are going on in this world, what happens to my perspective? When you look at the clock, how long does it take for the clock to move? An eternity, it seems like, right? But when I'm, my focus isn't on the clock, when my, my focus isn't on the, the suffering, when my focus isn't on the temporary things of this world, the time goes by quicker. There, there's actually becomes joy in the suffering. As Paul says, he changed his perspective, no longer looking at these temporary things, but looking from the perspective of eternity. Eternity. Peter says exactly the same thing there in First uh, Peter chapter three, verse eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an anti-type which now saves us. By the way, this is a fisherman talking. This is a, you know, a person who, who didn't go to college, didn't go to seminary, was just a, a fisherman using words like what he, the only one who uses this word prognosis that we saw at the very beginning, the foreknowledge of, of God, and then using the word submission and now using the word suffering and antitype and, and all these terms that are being used here. This is the fisherman inspired by God. Now, how can God use a, a fisherman to write the word of God? Because every single word of scripture is always inspired. And he's describing these terms that, unfortunately, many denominations even uh, argue over. Baptism, the very next word. Baptism, not the removal of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The fourth point, our suffering pales in significance to Christ's suffering for us and our sin. I have the perspective of heaven but I also have the perspective of what Jesus Christ did for me. Because again, did Christ suffer much more than any of us will ever suffer in this world? Any of us. And he suffered not just for me, not just for you, but for the entire world. He died on a cross. He bore our sins on his body. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why he came to this earth, to suffer for us. We rise above, we're called to rise above 
as mature Christians. And when people put you down, you don't have to let it get you down. As Jesus is the perfect example of that, right? Where Jesus, was Jesus mocked and ridiculed, reviled, and accused wrongly? Not, not just at the trial, not, not just, you know, before the cross, not, not just on the cross, but, but throughout his life. Was he always misinterpreted? Were there people that were always against him, always wanted to see his downfall? Yeah. Even plotting his death and demise, trying to shut him up. And if Jesus Christ suffers, what about for us? That amazing phrase that Jesus cried from the cross in Psalms 22, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words? My groaning, he suffered for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer the consequences of eternal separation. He, 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 he had for the first time in eternity a separation from the Father so that I would never have to see a separation from the Father. He was forsaken so I would never have to be forsaken. He, he bore my sin so I, I didn't have to suffer the consequences of my sin. He, he, he traded my sins for his righteousness. Wow. You call that unfair. And when we feel, you know, accused or reviled or, or mis, you know, interpreted, it's so easy to defend ourselves. When Jesus is the perfect example of that suffering lamb who died for us. First Peter chapter 4. Verse 1, it continues on. And again, the word suffering is used 12 times in 1 Peter. We, we see it throughout this section. Therefore, since, P, then, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. The, the word sin here uh, defines death. What, what's the wages of sin? Death. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, it says this, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, uh, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. If I, if I have to go through just a little bit of suffering in this world for my walk with Christ as a Christian, uh, that pales in significance to what it means to be in eternity forever and ever. No, knowing that the perfection of Jesus Christ is now attributed to me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. Uh, again, Paul continues on, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And this is the definition that we see also in, in Peter. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I don't have to give in to sin anymore. It no longer has a, a control on my life. Because who now controls my life? Who owns me? And if I have the Holy Spirit living in me, is there always a way of escape? Always. Romans chapter 6, verse 7, it says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Is there power in submitting to Christ? Is there power in the suffering with Christ? Is it superior? Yes, it is. First Peter chapter 4, it continues on there. Uh, Peter himself now comparing 
what it is like to be a new creation, a, a, a new person, understanding. Now, I, I'm baptized in uh, Christ. I'm no longer uh, a slave to the, the bondage of sin. I am free from those things. Verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. I, I, I've spent enough time sinning. I, I've spent enough time in bondage to sin. I know that the pleasures of sin are just temporary. He describes it like this. And by the way, this is personal for Peter. You know, he, he's describing the things that he used to do himself. Uh, when we walked, and he includes it, we, he includes himself in that uh, uh, pronoun, if you will. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revileries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. All those people that you used to hang out with before you knew Christ, how do they treat you after you come to Christ? By the way, that defines the quality of your friends too. The, the, the quality of the people that you used to hang out with. Because as Peter describes here, how do they now treat you? I mean, this is just as relevant today as it was when it was written 2,000 years ago. When, when, when you come to Christ, there, there is a, a definite uh, breaking from those that were once your friends that were not in Christ or are not in Christ. And there, there's a standard, there, there's a rejection, if you will, by them. Not by you, by them. They speak evil of you, verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit, this word dead here, unfortunately, is also misdefined. There's cults that take this verse and just go with it. But unfortunately, you know, they misinterpret. These are spiritually dead people. These are people that are still alive, but inwardly, they are spiritually dead. And do they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just like us. Just like Peter's referring to himself. Just like I had to hear it as well. Just like I had to grow up. Just like I had to acknowledge that I needed to be in submission under the will of God rather than proclaiming my will, which is so easy to do, by the way. Point number five. I cannot determine how other people respond, but I can control my own actions and response. We're called to rise above. Just a couple more verses here. Verse 7 of chapter 4. But the end of all things is at hand. I don't know if you're looking at the clock right now. I have the clock right, right back there, but it's the perfect segue. It's the perfect segue to the next, next week, but it's also the perfect segue to, you know, the ending of the sermon. Because what, what is Peter referring to here? Every single response is about Christian maturity, what it means to be a, a Christian who is maturing in Christ. And, and like I said last week and the week before, it, it's not determined about your age or even how long you've been a Christian. Uh, Christian maturity is your walk with Jesus Christ. There are young people that are more mature than older people that have been with Jesus for a long time because they've been complacent their whole lives, just pew sitters. And, and Peter is, is challenging this next generation. And if you come back next week, which I, I hope you do, it, it, again, every single week gets a little bit harder, but it, it's not for the people in the, the pews. It's those in leadership and the next generation that Peter's going to be talking about in chapter 5. It's the privilege of gathering as a, a whole body of Christ and, and seeing not only the vision that God has given to the elders, but the vision for the younger generation, the next generation that's coming up as well. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. 
You see, serious means mature. It's not, it's not frowning. It's not, you know, the doldrums. It's not being boring. No, that there's an understanding that there's a mature walk with Christ and the frivility of the age or the frivility of the world pales in significance. There's joy in what it means to be a mature Christian. There's a serious and important matter in prayer. It's extremely important to the walk of the Christian life. And Peter, of course, he, he saw that firsthand with Jesus, right? What would Jesus do? He, he would spend nights in prayer. He, he would spend all night in prayer, and then he'd have to go and, and, and minister to people the very next day. Because he, he wanted to be close to his Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 12, it says this, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. When I, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. The goal is Jesus, the maturity. The, the goal is Jesus Christ walking with him in maturity. 1 Peter chapter 8. One last point here. Bear with one another weaknesses and faults as Christ has first done with you. Bear with one another weaknesses and faults as Christ has first done with you. As Christ had to be patient with your faults and insecurities, your weaknesses and your immaturity. And how patient is he with us? And he calls us to do the same with others. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sin. Wow. That the mature Christian doesn't hold it against the immature Christian when they act immature. Just as we never hold it against a baby or, or a toddler or a young uh, person. We would never do that. And understanding our, the mature Christian doesn't hold it against in terms of their sins even. Look at what it says. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with, as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When anyone ministers, whether it's Sunday school or mowing the lawn or cleaning uh, the bathroom or giving out the things that at Together We Can, or whether it is even up here, the people that, that sing or, or the people that preach, it's all to God's glory. Are you using your gift? That's what a mature person or mature Christian does. We're called to rise above. It's all to the glory of God, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And there's that word that we end it here today. Amen. So be it. The word that we use at the end of our prayers, even. You see, Christ's love, patience, forgiveness toward others using the gift that he has given to us. Why did God even give us the gifts in the first place? It's edify the church to build up the church. The, the men, we went through the, the spiritual gifts last summer and the privilege of understanding that every single Christian has been given a spiritual gift. And we're called to use that gift. Otherwise, the, the body of Christ, you know, it, you know, it's just a couple of people that do all the work, right? We're all called to use our gift. You see, when we change our perspective of suffering and we look to what Jesus has done for us, glory and heaven become exceedingly and infinitely bigger and comforting a hope than does not disappoint a hope or, excuse me, a joy 
that is sure. A hope that is sure, too. A joyful hope that is sure. You see, your suffering may feel heavy now. My, my suffering may, be, may feel heavy now. But it is a drop compared to the ocean of God's love. It's a pebble. No, no it's a, a piece of sand, a, a grain of sand compared to the Everest of the weight of glory that we get to experience forever and ever. And so I, ho I hope today, as, as you read through this or, or listened to this, and that, that you wouldn't just you know, leave this building or leave this campus, that it would actually change your life, that you would actually go over these verses again. That you would read First Peter, and the challenge has been over the last uh, three weeks that, that we would read, you know, just five chapters, one chapter a day, five days. And really let it sink into your life. That would transform your life, the perspective of Peter understanding what it means to, to suffer. And that, that, that perspective that we all have to have, especially as mature Christians. Am I growing closer to God every single day? Or I'm acting like an immature world. So, Father, this morning as we approach you, I thank you so much for these, my friends, and my family. Thank you for your word, the power of your word, the, the power of 1 Peter. Lord, I ask that you would just help us to examine our lives. Are we, are we wanting to become more and, more and more immature or more and more mature in Christ? That desire that we should have to to grow closer and closer to you, that our, that our walk would be in the direction of you. And this momentary uh, blimp of, of suffering that we experience here in this world pales in significance to what it means for eternity, forever and ever, the joy of hope, the exceedingly great and mighty weight of glory that we get to experience and even have a glimpse here on this, on this earth even. Thank you, Lord, for that. And so, Lord, as we worship you this morning, as we, we praise you with our lips, let it be a, a sweet-smelling aroma before the very throne room of a holy and righteous God that, that our, 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 our burdens that we have would just be placed at your feet right now. That there's anyone that, that needs counseling or needs someone to talk to, that they would come to the front, that they would, they would want to, uh, to seek you whether it's here at the altar or, or, or with counseling up here in the front. And so, Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends and my family. I ask that you use us for your glory today, that we would look forward to that time that lasts forever and ever where there, there is no more suffering, where there is no more tears, where there is uh, no more separation, where, where we do get to see those that are our loved ones in Christ again. So, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.